It's great to be with you. If you've never joined us before, my name is John Perrine. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to join us on Valentine's Day. I recently had brought to my attention one of the hit classics of the early year 2003. Remember 2003? Uh, this song topped the charts here in the UK. But if you think about 2003, I mean, it just feels like an eternity ago, doesn't it? The song is going to sing uh, about 9-11, the war in Iraq that was just beginning. And the song also raises concerns about video game violence and gangs on the street, which frankly don't seem to really fill any of our news channels as much as they used to. But it was the chorus of the song that as I listened to it again, all the way here in 2020, that struck me deep in the heart. Because even though 17 years have passed, we seem to be living the same question. The song sings, people killing, people dying, children hurt, you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach? Can you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. We need some guidance from above. Cause people got me, got me questioning. Where is the love? I'm of course talking about the song, Where is the Love by the Black Eyed Peas. I will refrain from singing the rest of it for you, though if you're anything like me, the song may now get stuck in your head the rest of the day. That's not exactly a bad thing, especially on a day like Valentine's Day, because the question the Black Eyed Peas asked is just as relevant now as it was in 2003. Where is the love? Where is the love as we navigate a pandemic? Where is the love as we hope for new relationships or we try to revive old relationships? Where is the love as we wrestle with job loss, depression, addiction, disappointment, despair? Where is the love? Perhaps this morning might be the first chance you've had in a while to pause and really allow yourself to reflect. Where do I find love? All of us are looking for love. All of us need love. All of us to some extent or another are aware that love is missing in our world and that love is missing for us. So how do we find it? How do you find love? Interestingly, the Bible takes us in a direction that might surprise you when it comes to love by making a few very powerful claims. First, the Bible points out, we are loving creatures. All of us are built for love. All of us are designed to offer love. And all of us are designed to receive love. As Adam is walking around the Garden of Eden, God will make an observation in Genesis 2:18. It is not good for man to be alone. As human beings, we have this hunger for love, much like our hunger for food. Sometimes it's possible to get distracted. Maybe you even miss a meal or two of love, but whenever you go even a few hours without it, you start to feel pangs inside, like something necessary is missing from your life. But if the first point the Bible makes is that we're built for love, the second observation of the Bible on love is that because the draw to love is so powerful, inevitably you and I will end up worshiping what we love. Now, I think it's important to pause right here. You might be thinking, sure, worship is well and good for religious people, but I'm not religious. Maybe you'd even say, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic. I don't believe in God. The Bible, however, looks at worship far more broadly. At the root of the word worship is the word worth. 
Worship is whatever we attribute worth to, whatever we value most, whatever we admire, whatever we'd say that we love most, that is what we worship. Because love is so powerful, and because our need for love is so powerful, what tends to happen is that the more we love something, the more we worship it, the more we find ourselves depending on whatever that thing is to be happy ourselves. This is part of the human condition. We all do it. We take something good and we give it ultimate value. We let whatever this thing is become more important to us than anything else in our life. In that sense, if your greatest worth can be found in Liverpool winning the title, or maybe if your greatest worth could be found in the amount of likes you receive on Instagram, then those are what you worship. If your greatest worth is found in money or success in your job or the freedom and comfort that comes from staying home all day on the couch to watch television, then that is what you worship. The Bible will call these items of worship idols. It is something other than God that promises us love and demands our love and worship in return. Anything can be an idol. Anything can be a good that's become an ultimate in your life. One of the characteristic signs of an idol is that it promises you meaning and fulfillment. It tells you that without it, your life can never be full. Recently, I was at the dinner table with my sister-in-law who's 19. She has been stuck at home in the lockdown instead of being at uni like she had hoped. And so one night, understandably low, she lets out this huge sigh and declares, I am depressed. That made sense to all of us. We understood what she meant. But what came next surprised us. She said, with a straight face, I think if we get a jacuzzi, it would solve my depression. Now, I couldn't help but laugh at such a silly thought. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized how easy it is for idols like jacuzzis to crop up in our hearts for there to be some concrete aim or wish. For some of us, it might be a jacuzzi. For others of us, it might be a new car. It might be that house. Or especially now for me, I know my idol is lockdown lifting. If we could just have lockdown be over, then meaning and value and purpose will be restored in my life. This is the promise of an idol. It begins growing in my heart as something that I value, that I worship, and that begins to become an ultimate, something I become convinced I cannot live without if I'm going to be happy. In the ancient world of the Bible, these idols often were quite concrete. In your village, there would probably be a couple different temples, and each temple would house a different god or goddess. And each of these gods and goddesses would offer something to you. Some gods were dedicated to the rains to give you a good harvest. Some were dedicated to romance to help you find a spouse. And some gods were dedicated to wisdom, that if you worshiped these gods, they would finally help you get ahead in business and in life. All that the system required was that you bring a sacrifice, something you valued, normally a sheep or a goat or money. And if you offered that sacrifice to your idol, the hope was that the idol would love you in return by giving you whatever it was you knew you couldn't live without. At this point, you might be wondering, surely though, these ancient people had to know the system didn't always work. 
Like most of the time, when you offered a sacrifice to the rain god, surely it wouldn't rain. Or if you offered a sacrifice to the romance god, surely you wouldn't be guaranteed to fall in love. Or just offering a sacrifice to the wisdom god wouldn't make you successful or wise. I think that's a good point, though I'm not sure we're all that different today. I recently saw some statistics about the lottery in the UK. Since it was established in 1994, did you know that over 70% of the UK has purchased a lottery ticket? That's 70% of people who have a 1 in 100 million chance in winning, walking into a petrol station and offering up their sacrifice of a few pounds because of the very slight chance that they could receive a massive financial windfall. What's even more surprising is that when you've played the lottery and haven't won, an estimated 50% of the UK continues to play the lottery over and over again each month to this day. Over and over, we continue to bring our sacrifice to our idol, hoping that this time the idol will come through and offer us whatever it is we worship, whatever it is we love, hoping that finally our idol will love us back. Which leads to the fourth point the Bible makes about love. If we were built for love, if we worship what we love, and if that worship turns good things into idols, the real danger the Bible warns is that our idols will never love us back and could in fact destroy us if we rely on them for the love that we need. The lottery, of course, is a dangerous example of this. For those who win the lottery, the result over 30% of the time is eventual bankruptcy. Study after study have shown that while many problems in life can be solved by money, happiness is unfortunately not one of them. Even if you had more money, you wouldn't find that your money ever is capable of loving you back. This is also true in addictions. I've long been fascinated with addictions because I've seen that powerful pull they have, the longing that they stir within us. All addictions begin with the promise of love. Alcohol gives you a buzz that makes you feel relaxed. Cigarettes offer the taste and smell of their own buzz and the social ease they bring. Marijuana alters your perceptions and often brings heightened thrills from its highs. But the more you turn to these drugs, the less buzzed, the less ease, the less happy you feel. They become cruel masters of you, demanding more and more time and money and offering less and less in return until you, eventually, broken, realize these idols have taken everything from you and left you nothing in return except a dependence on that drug to give you another short burst of relief. A famous writer that I love from the United States named David Foster Wallace, who was himself not a Christian, nor really all that interested or committed to religion, understood this very danger and made the same point in a famous address at Kenyon College in 2005. Wallace says this, Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of god or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally put you in the ground. I think this is a haunting truth that Wallace is capturing. All of us can't help but worship. We're going to be drawn to something. We were made for love. We're meant to love. Our hearts are meant to offer our love somewhere. But think about all of the places when you take a step back that our hearts are tempted to worship. Are any of those places offering us any good or value if you give everything to it in worship of it? Think about if you center your life on your family and your children. Eventually, you will try to live your life through them until they resent you or have no sense of self. At worst, you may abuse or hurt them when your children displease you. If you try to center your life on your work and career, you will end up being a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, you'll develop deep depression. If you try to center your life on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself addicted to something, to anything, be it food or sleep or video games or sex or TV. You will become chained to escape strategies by which you avoid the challenges of life. Even some of you who think, maybe I can just center my life on a noble cause, some sort of charity or purpose. If you center your life on a noble cause, you'll divide the world into good and bad people, and you'll demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies without whom you would have no purpose. And what about love on Valentine's Day? Do you see the ironic danger? Romantic love for so many of us offered us the one great hope of love, the one great hope that we might truly love and be loved by another. But when marriage or your spouse becomes your idol, you find yourself emotionally dependent, jealous, or maybe even controlling. The other person's problems overwhelm and inevitably control you. Or worse, what started as love slowly becomes cold and detached. You fight often because of the inconveniences and frustrations you have with each other, and you begin to simply avoid each other to live your life and find love in other places. Unfortunately, when it comes to all of these different options of where to center our lives, religion can often become a factor as well. Perhaps as you've been watching this message, there's been this subtle pride in you where you say, I know what I worship. I am very religious. I grew up in the church. I attend church. I go to Bible study. But even religion can become an idol when you look to your religion to give you ultimate worth and value. If you judge yourself based on your ability to live up to your moral standards, inevitably you will struggle with pride, self-righteousness, and will be cruel. Yet it is precisely this point that separates Christianity from the claims of other religions. Other religions attempt to solve our idol problem with a religion answer. If you become a better person, or at least try to be a good person, and you fulfill the demands and requirements of our morals, 
then you will be accepted by God. What these other religions, and even those who call themselves Christians, but are really just worshiping their own moral and religious standards, they can't see that our idol problem is actually a love problem. Our religion can't save us because unlike any other idol, though it seems to offer a sense of security and control, our religion can never love us back. Inevitably, we will fail our religion only to find that a religion built on morals and conduct can never really offer us love back at all. So where then do we look for love if we are ever to answer the Black Eyed Peas question? Where is love? Love that is greater than our own self-interest. Love that won't destroy us. Love that can actually love us back. In one breathtaking verse, the Bible gives us an answer. This is Galatians 2.20. It says, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. This is what's so stunning about the Bible's claim. The Bible suggests we are actually part of a love story. I mean, who on Valentine's Day doesn't feel the stir, the longing, even that hunger pang for love? Yet incredibly, we're told in the Bible that it is a love story in which God loved us, loved me, as the Apostle Paul says. Yet even more incredibly, that this God gave himself for us. I mean, how do we even begin to understand this type of love? How do we wrap our minds around the scope of God coming to give himself for us in love? There's this parable that I love told by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard that I think shows us the love story that's at the heart of the good news about Jesus. Kierkegaard is going to say this, Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her heads with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear? nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross the gulf between them. For, Kierkegaard says, it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. So the story ends that the king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering loosely around him. It was no mere disguise, but a new identity he took on. He renounced the throne to win her hand. So 
As we ponder the meaning of this parable, we are struck by the fact that the incarnation, the life and death of Jesus, where God took on our flesh to become lowly with us, to show us his love, to take on our idolatry, answers once and for all the question, what is God's heart towards me? This is why Paul is going to say in Romans 5, look here at the cross. Here is the demonstration of God's heart. Anytime you're confused about love, anytime you're trying to figure out where love is, there on the cross, God offered himself for you, for me. God bore on his own body the pain and the betrayal and the lack of love that we could not give. And yet at this point, of our deepest betrayal, when we had run our furthest from him and gotten so lost in the woods we could never find our way home, God came and died to rescue us. On our own, I am convinced we can never find love that will truly love us back. We will never worship something that won't destroy us. Even religion itself cannot save us. But God in Christ came to us because he loved us and gave himself for me without demanding anything in return. This is the offer of Jesus. If you receive this love, if you turn to the love of God, not the demands of religion or a noble cause or your job or your children or even on Valentine's Day your quest for love, but instead if you turn to God's love, then it is the only love that will never destroy you. It is the only love that will pour itself out for you. It is the only love that can free you from lesser loves. So this morning, I want to ask, are you ready to be free from your idols? Are you ready to stop looking for love in those other concerns that can never truly love you back? Are you ready to turn to God? Maybe you've spent your whole life burned out on religion. God wants to invite you into his love. He wants to woo you back to his love story. Or maybe you've spent your whole life avoiding God. And if you're being honest this morning, you're realizing you thought you were free from God, but you've actually been enslaved to your idol this whole time. And it is an idol that will never love you back. In fact, it is an idol that might destroy you if you continue to give it your love. Pastor Tim Keller points the invitation of Jesus this way. Pastor Tim Keller puts the invitation of Jesus this way that I think especially resonates on Valentine's Day. This is what Tim Keller says. No person, not even the best one, can give your soul all it needs. This cosmic disappointment and disillusionment is there in all of life, but we especially feel it in the things in which we set our hopes. When you finally realize this, there are four things you can do. You can blame the things that are disappointing you and try to move on to better ones. That's the way of continued idolatry and spiritual addiction. You can blame yourself and beat yourself. That's the way of self-loathing and shame. You can blame the world. That's how you get hardened, cynical, and empty. Or you can reorient the entire focus of your life on God. So this morning, which of those four steps will you take when confronted by your idols? Will you simply move on to a different idol, hoping that maybe this one will love you better than your previous idols have? 
Will you beat yourself up, turning instead to the shame and despair that you were never lovely to begin with, that there is never love that you deserved or earned? Will you become hardened and burned out and cynical, saying love is just for fools and madmen who run around this world looking for something they can never have? Or will you reorient your whole life to the love of a God that has finally offered you the love you've been looking for? It's really quite easy to do. Even this morning, it involves a simple prayer where you can acknowledge the idols you've been worshiping and turn instead to the love of Jesus on the cross. It's really as simple as that. So I'm going to bow my head in prayer now, and I want to give you the chance as you check into your heart to ask, where is the love? Where have I been trying to find love? And am I finally ready to turn to the love of God? and reorient the entire focus of my life on God. So let us pray. God of love, I see that in my search of love, I have often looked to idols. I have looked to idols that can never love me back. God, I want your love. Today, I want to receive your love, to know your love in Jesus, to receive what you are offering me in Jesus. Today, I want to become a part of the story you've been telling, a story in which you humbled yourself and came down for me because you love me. And today, Lord, I want to be freed from my other lesser loves. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus, who died and gave himself for me. Today, I want to be freed by your love, and I pray this in Jesus' name this message has resonated with you, we'd love to hear about it, either by messaging us or by reaching out to a friend. If you found yourself convicted by the presence of an idol, then I would encourage you, encourage you to share with someone in your life what you sense is a lesser love, a love that could in fact destroy you. And ultimately, I would encourage you to even today seek out more of the love of Jesus to come back to church to hear about this love, to learn more about the sin and idols that are enslaving you, and to find the love of God that he offers to us in Jesus. May this Valentine's Day, you know the love that is available to you in God. And may together we find love in Jesus Christ. East Point Church, it has been great to be with you this morning. We'll look forward to seeing you again.